A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Namaste, everyone. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, happy as can be to welcome you back to the Yoga Revealed podcast. With over 30 episodes live and 45,000 subscribers, we are elated to be a part of this thriving community of yoga thirsty knowledge seekers. On today's episode of Yoga Revealed, we highlight Yogapod Boulder teacher Matt Kapanis. Matt is a high advocate of not only teaching, but also remaining in a perspective of how he can learn from every single moment, forever being a student. And you start to understand that as a student, you get to give something to a teacher. I think that's an important part of the practice is a willingness to sit in the place of studenthood and know that you still have something to offer the space, mm -hmm. that it's not the teacher offering it to the class, but there's a kind of symbiosis there where there's an exchange of energy. I think that's an important aspect to the practice. Tune into this insightful conversation of yoga with Matt Kapanis on today's episode of Yoga Revealed. Hello, my fellow wisdom seekers. Namaste. This is Alec Rubin here to welcome you to the podcast, Yoga Revealed. So before we do get started, if you haven't visited yogarevealed.com, please do and sign up for the newsletter. Andrew Seely and I are visiting amazing events this summer, and we truly hope to connect with you and meet you and share what we love, yoga. So today on the podcast, it brings me such pleasure to introduce a beautiful person in my life. He is someone who is so inspiring and very eloquent in how he shares his experience. He is a primary teacher here at the Yoga Pod in Boulder in Denver, and he is a fellow person on the path to self-exploration. Mr. Matt Kapanis, thank you so much for inviting me into your house and sharing with us what yoga is to you. Thanks, Alec. Thank you, brother. So for those who don't know your path, your story, do you think you could offer us a little synopsis of how yoga was revealed to you? 
Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, I think it was about eight years ago, I was on my own little journey to become a chiropractor. I had had a kind of epiphany at a certain weekend chiropractic gathering, and I thought, you know, this is absolutely what I want to do with my life. And I had already started making the plans to go off to school. I was at Front Range Community College taking my prerequisites, some some of the sciences like uh, advanced chemistry and organic chemistry and was all set to go. And the one last little piece of the puzzle that needed to happen was I needed to sell my condo that I owned here in Boulder. I I didn't want to try to move off to a different state and study chiropractic while being a, a sort of absentee landlord thousands of miles away. So I thought, you know, I just need to sell the place and then I go. But it was a little slow going. The market was slow. And even though I'd kind of knocked the price down, it still wasn't selling. And all around me, my peers and friends kept sort of asking me to almost to the point where it almost seemed like I was getting badgered. Hey, Matt, when are you going? When You keep talking about chiropractor school. Why are you still here? And uh, the you know, I just said, you know, hey, I've got to, you know, sell my place and then I'm off. And that's just the one thing that needs to fall in line. And in the meantime, you know, life happens. And I was at the gym one day and someone mentioned that they had been doing hot yoga. And I thought as it was getting to be, you know, winter, I thought, wow, that sounds really good. Uh, sounds like that would feel good in my body. So I took a chance, rolled off to a hot, uh, one of our local studios where they teach hot yoga. And uh, it was a very challenging class, but I remember something that the teacher said that really stuck with me. He said, uh, at some point, some pose we were doing, he said, none of us are where we want to be in terms of our flexibility. But yoga is about compassion for where we are right now. And I took that in a very metaphorical way. And in the context of feeling very stuck in my own life and feeling like I didn't have a lot of flexibility, uh, it was a it was a very different message to receive than the one that all my peers were giving me, which is, hey, how come you're not leaving? It, you know, what's what's wrong? Uh, his message was, it's okay to feel stuck. Or at least that's the way what I read into it. It's okay to be right here, right now, even if your life is not progressing the way you'd like it to. There is a certain importance in what you're doing right now at this moment. And I thought, well, wherever they're giving this message, I need to go back there. I need to, I need to go back and receive that message more. And so I kept going back to yoga. Uh, I, one, I liked how it felt. And I felt like I was starting to, to develop some flexibility, uh, a little bit more strength. I was into working out and I liked to run. So I was pretty athletic, but I noticed that yoga sort of um, invited a different kind of fortitude, 
and uh, and in, in the embodied experience, something different than running or you know pumping out some bench presses. It was it was a different uh, kind of exercise, if you will. And I was definitely aware that was there was something intrinsically spiritual underneath, but I wasn't really sure where I fit in in all of that. I had a pretty um, consistent practice as uh, an observant Jew, and I wasn't really resonating so much with a lot of the Hindu imagery that seemed to get brought into the yoga practice, but, but I did like just doing the practice. And I took it with a certain level of, I would say, intellectual flexibility to say, well, okay, say we're chanting here to Ganesha or we're doing the Gayatri mantra. Is there a way that I can make this relevant to my own understanding of spirit and God and how I fit into the cosmos? And uh, ultimately, I feel like I... I resonate a little bit more with yoga that is somewhat stripped from some of that Hindu imagery, but nevertheless um, borrows heavily from the technology of consciousness exploration and self-exploration that has a thread, I would say, in nearly every religion, Western or Eastern. And that's sort of where I kind of put my feet in the yoga practice. So I did a lot of hot yoga for a while, and then I kind of decided to branch out and thought, hey, vinyasa looks interesting. And I took a chance on going over into a vinyasa class where it was very different and I didn't really know what I was doing and there were poses like down dog that don't show up in hot yoga but are ubiquitous in a vinyasa practice and so I realized there was this whole other spectrum of yoga postures to begin exploring and it had a little bit more of a playfulness to it there was some arm balance there were handstands, um, some interesting little contortions, and I thought, well, this is really interesting. It seems like there's a lot more to study here. So I stayed at my practice for about nine months, and then uh, it was after class one day that the teacher made an announcement about teacher training, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting, like a good way to deepen my practice and if and when I ever get off to chiropractor school, this seems like it would be a great part-time job. You show up for an hour, make maybe 40, 50 bucks, and you know, you go home and you don't have to grind it out waiting tables. Or, <laughs> you know, I, I imagined having to perhaps even do worse to just make, in meet, make ends meet while being a student uh, at a, an expensive chiropractor school. So uh, I thought, okay, this this would be an interesting sort of addition to my practice, I'll take a teacher training. And it was in that teacher training that I discovered that I had a bit of, I guess you could call it a natural talent for articulating alignment mm. and how to set up a yoga pose. And given that you're a teacher as well, you probably learn very quickly that it's a very different skill set uh, to 
to be able to talk yoga as opposed to just doing it and finding alignment in your body. Mm-hmm. Sort of making that bridge from the brain to the tongue to say, this is what you do in a pose is its own challenge. And some people do it very effortlessly. And for some people, it's a little more uphill. And I think for some people, it's so uphill that they ultimately decide, yeah, I don't think I really want to be a yoga teacher. I'd mm-hmm. rather just practice. And they're still content to do things like a teacher training, but it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not um, their destiny to mm-hmm. get in front of a class and teach people. So, yeah, it kind of snowballed and I auditioned for a spot to teach at a a local studio and I got the position and I guess you could say the rest is sort of history. I ended up quitting my day job and just throwing all my chips into the world of teaching yoga and here I sit today. I love that. I love how you said at one point, you know, cosmic consciousness through self-exploration and that's where you stick stick your feet in light of uh, what you transmit instead of identifying so much with um, the more uh, uh, you know perhaps mystical parts of the practice yeah so you it seems like you really offer something highly accessible to maybe the householder yeah I try to I try to. People, middle Americans who might bristle at the idea of chanting to, you know, a monkey faced God or (laughs) an Indian or I mean, an elephant headed God. It's it's uh, I I try to hold space for people who might even be, you know, conservative Republicans or born again Christians to still feel like they there is uh, an entryway for them into the practice, too. That's important. Yeah. Beautiful. So what do you find is one of the most important parts of your practice? The most important parts of my practice... um, Well, I would say one is regularity. Mm. And then, you know, you, you, you have to show up with some consistency on your yoga mat. You can't just take huge swaths of time off and expect to kind of have your head in the game. But I think by the same token, it's also important that we rest and that we do take some time off. I think it's important that we draw from other sources, Mm. that we don't just fixate on one particular style of yoga or one particular teacher or maybe just a few teachers. I think that it's important that we make ourselves available to learn from even uh, very novice teachers who might just be coming out of teacher training or a little green, but nevertheless, they're bringing the freshness of their own perspective into it. And they may not be speaking with the greatest authenticity, uh, but in time that comes about and you start to understand that as a student, you get to give something to a teacher. I think that's an important part of the practice is a willingness to sit in the place of studenthood and know that you still have something to offer the space, Mm. that it's not the teacher offering it to the class, but there's a kind of symbiosis there where there's an exchange of energy. I think that's an important aspect to the practice. Um, I think it's important that we explore the other aspects of the eight-limbed path. Because I think a lot of people get hung up on just the asana aspect. And they can bypass 
the moral restraints, the yamas. And I see this regularly where people are very seasoned in their practice, but they have tremendous amount of um, what I might call moral blind spots where they're a little fast and loose with the truth or Mm -hmm. they might, yeah, there might be ways that they don't show up in a way that is kind and soft and I wouldn't say ego less, but at least um, where the ego can kind of sit more in the background. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there's a lot that we can learn from really looking at those moral restraints before we start patting ourselves on the back at how good our back bends are or our handstand practice. I think it's important that we have a kind of moral anchor because technically your yoga practice could make you a more seasoned liar. It could make you a more attractive uh, philanderer where you have a great deal of sort of charisma and you might even think, or or what we might even call um, kind of sexual attractiveness. But if it's not couched in a little bit of the brahmacharya, Mm. then we become almost weaponized people rather than servants of of a higher sort of existence for all of humankind. We find ourselves more able to um, uh, do our old life and engage in our old habits in a way that um, can be a little less honest, where we're not we're not really showing up from the fullness of the heart, but more using yoga as a kind of platform for our own materialism and self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we have um, a. a a foundation in good morality. I think it's also good that we take it up a notch and be willing to to work on things like pranayama and meditation uh, and that we can sit still for a little bit because mm. I think that can be a big challenge. Um, occasionally people hit the end of their class and there's no sense of giving time or space to just being still Mm. it's like well that was that was great i'm off to the next thing and um yeah there i think it's important that we give ourselves time to integrate the practice integrate the information that these poses sort of transmit to the body mind i think that's another important that takes a lot of time it does or or it doesn't or you can just kind of do it quickly and recognize that the yoga never really ends even as you step off your yoga mat you're paying attention to your body language as you have a conversation with someone in the locker room or in the lobby you're paying attention to um how you're taking your shower are you just sort of using minutes and minutes of hot water or are you is there a little bit of an eco-consciousness i think that's an important aspect too but there's a lot of ways that mindfulness 
can come out of the context of a yoga practice and be extended into the larger arenas of our life. Mm, wow. So as we hope to integrate these moral observations into our lives, as well as we practice asana throughout the days, say, for instance, if the yogi had a mission statement, what do you think our mission statement would be? I think if a yogi had a, a, a yogi or a yoga teacher. Ooh, let's say yogi. Let's a make yogi. It, let's make it universal. Okay. I don't think you can come up with a universal for yogis. I'll say that. Cool. Um, I think that people come to yoga for a variety of reasons. Mm. Uh, some people are there specifically so that they can have a hotter body. And they might, you know, be pole dancers on the sides or maybe just straight out exotic dancers. I know this has been the case. You know, some people, they, you know, they, they, they show up on their yoga mat and it's clear that they're doing it to get a tight butt and good abs and lose weight and to be flexible and all the things that we sort of dovetail with sexual attractiveness. There are people who approach yoga just for that. And I don't want to, I don't want to sort of thumb my nose at people who that's their approach. Mm. There are other people who it's the complete other end and they are there to explore consciousness and they're not even that interested in handstands or acrobatics or big contortions. They want a really simple, clear class where there's enough space that they can just kind of stay embodied. And even if it's what other people might conceive as, as boring, it's a perfect fit for them because it gives them enough silence and stillness to really explore consciousness. And then you could fill in the gap there and most people probably fall somewhere in the middle where there is some consciousness, but they like the physicality of the practice. They like how it makes them feel and where they put the emphasis uh, can vary from person to person. So a, so a mission statement mm. um, across the board from yogis, I don't know that one could distill it. Uh, I definitely think that yoga teachers probably could be served to have a bit of a mission statement that is more couched in service. Mm. And I think this sometimes gets lost, um, especially when business comes into it. And, you know, you you have to have a certain level or number of students in your class to make it financially viable for both studio owners and for you as the teacher. Cause sometimes you're getting paid on commit commission per head and you might be getting two, $3 a head. Well, if you only have three students, it can be hard to like, you know, throw a full hour in with all of your heart and soul and walk away with, you know, a 10 spot that, that can be a little bit of a drain, a drain. Uh, if that's, if, if you're planning on making a living from it. But a lot of teachers, they just want 
to hold the space and serve, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning. I think you come out of a teacher training and you, you realize that you've been given this treasure and you want to share it with people. And very often it's just you giving pro bono classes to like your roommates or your mom or something. And you're mm-hmm. like, Hey mom, let me, let me get you in here to do a yoga class. I get to practice teaching and you get some yoga and we both get to learn. So, so there, there, I, I think there's a benefit to sort of setting your compass as a yoga teacher to making it about service. How can I give more? How can I move myself into the periphery of my class and put uh, the community out on center stage, mm. put the sort of the collective and, and it's in that sense of a collective that I think individuals really find a, a sort of flourishing. Um, but it's important that the teacher, I, I dare say, maybe r- retreat a little bit from the temptation to put a spotlight on themselves. Mm. And it's, it's, it's subtle as the language we use as yoga teachers. Um, and it's as subtle as the words we say at the beginning of a class when we're creating themes. Is your theme just, you know, let me tell you about my life and you guys can all be my default therapist for the next five minutes? Or is there some way that, you, that what I'm telling you can have relevance to the broadest possible swath of people sitting in front of me? Mm. Nice. You know, you... To comment on some individuals who may get onto the yoga mat purely for you know for exercise and, and getting the body fit, I'm a, this may be very overly optimistic for me, but I'm a huge believer that you know the yoga and I would like you to comment on this. The yoga is so powerful that no matter what brings us to our yoga mat, there will be a tiny little seed that is planted of perhaps consciousness that will slowly awaken and and sprout over the course of the lifetime um, that may have those individuals return to the yoga with a different intent. Yeah. And that may take time. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I definitely think that um, like anything where you immerse yourself in a particular community i i almost want to call it like an institution mm. because there it, it has its own sort of customs and rituals it has its own language ways of talking about the experience that people are having there's no way you can really in immerse yourself into that without it sort of rubbing off on you in some way. And so even if you, um, you know, are the most unyogic person on the world, whatever that looks like, I, I don't even want to give examples of what an <laughs> unyogic person is, but if, even if you find yourself to sort of be miles away from what we might call, um, uh, an equanimous calm, uh, centered, but not self-centered person. Once you get on your yoga mat, you, you just start 
picking up that energy. We do have an aspect of our nervous system that's sort of remnant of the fish. And fish know very well, very intuitively, how to school with the larger collective. They don't have to think about it. But when one fish in the school switches directions, all the other fish kind of turn at, at in like a split second, it kind of happens as a collective. And I think something like this starts to happen to the individual on their yoga mat, that in that group space, there is um, a, a kind of refinement that has an amplification simply because it's done in a group or in a collective. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I can see how anybody no matter how, like, you know, if you, maybe you're in prison and you start doing yoga and sooner or later, some of what your teacher says and some of what your fellow prisoner yogis are experiencing with you starts to kind of congeal and you find yourself more patient, um, more forgiving, uh, more compassionate, all these qualities that we sort of associate with an emerging enlightened or an emerging enlightened state uh, start to express themselves in the individual. Mm, wow, that's profound. <laughs> that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that. So, you know, again, like I said, every time I've always taken your class, you're always so real with yourself and you're vulnerable and, and you reveal yourself to the, the students and the individuals who are in the room. And in your experience over the years that you've been living, how have you gotten closer to yourself? Um, you know, I think for a long time I had a little bit of uh, this nagging internal question, what's wrong with me? Like, uh, I, I'm wondering how detailed I really want to give you here, but, or how much, how much detail I want to give you here, but I am a little bit of an introvert. Now I would say I'm a, I'm a big time introvert. And this is something that goes way back, a kind of shyness. I'm not really outgoing. I'm not one to sort of jump into a new circle of people and be like, what's up guys? Hey, I'm Matt and let's hang out. That just was <laughs> not my thing. And so I always felt like, boy, I wish I could be that way. I wish I, I wish that were me. Mm. And as I've gotten more into my practice, and I, and I have to be honest, a lot of it comes from just talking with people and sometimes reading particular books that I've learned that human beings are not all cut from the same cloth. You do have the extrovert, the people who are, um, you know, they can have a thousand conversations with a thousand different people in a single day and they walk away and they're like, wow, that was great. What a great day. <laughs> I, I, that sounds to me almost like a nightmare. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's too many conversations with too many people. I need time alone. Like I need downtime. Mm. Um, and it, and it, it means that I sometimes get sort of interpreted as being sort of aloof or not really emotionally available because of that sense of inwardness. I have a little bit of um, a, a kind of withdrawn uh, quality when I'm 
connecting with people. And I've learned to develop some comfort with that. Mm. I still try to show up for people. And when I'm in the moment, I try not to, um, you know, seem disconnected. I try to pay attention to my body language and recognize I don't want to convey that I'd rather be doing something else than talking with this person. Mm. Even though sometimes that can be something that's sort of sitting in the background there's an awareness, boy, I'd like this conversation to be over. And, and it's not necessarily like I, I don't care, but sometimes, you know, people, they just draw your energy and they need to be heard. They need to be seen. And you sometimes feel like you might hit the, the limit of your ability to hear and see a person. And it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, put up the wall mm. or start doing things that just subtly um, choreograph that you'd like this conversation to end. Uh, but you become more aware that this is an aspect, or at least I become more aware that this is kind of an aspect of myself. And I've found some kindness towards it in a way that for a while, I didn't. I, it was like a great deal of friction and I always felt like I had to make the scene and I had to be there for people and I had to, you know, be outgoing and strike up conversations with strangers and really be invested in small talk. And I've developed a kind of comfort with deciding that that's not really me. Mm. I, I like the silence. I like the solitude. And I like a little bit of, you know, community and the group, mm -hmm. the group dynamic. But I, I dare say uh, yoga's helped me see a little bit more um, just kind of my innate qualities that are probably more primal in their anchoring into my nervous system mm -hmm. so that I'm not as... Uh, so I'm, I'm not so much in a state of friction with who I am by measuring it up to how other people are in the world and their personalities. Mm, wow. I, I really appreciate how you do such a well done job at illuminating such a hard concept to talk about. You know, this is, you know, we've all been in conversations where it's like, okay, I would like this conversation to be done now. Yeah. And how to hold integrity in yeah. those moments for yeah who we are and for the other person is almost like a double-edged sword. So I, I think it's a really valuable conversation to, to hold. Yeah. You, you, you know, I've noticed now if I get into say an argument, mm. um, and I, I almost use that term loosely because I feel like I've developed an ability to sort of diffuse arguments now by just getting really clear with a person, um, with where they're coming from and asking them questions rather than trying to stand from a place of, of, I want to be right and I want to one-up you, there's a little bit more willingness to um, ask questions that might lead to a softening in the other person before I try to just kind of match their intensity with my own. I, I, can, I feel like sometimes I can sense where uh, emotions are starting to run a little high and 
do my part to cool things down and bring it to a level where communication flourishes rather than drama. Mm. Nice. You know, that, that's awesome. Thank you. Definitely. So if you could give yourself advice from your first year self practicing yoga, what do you feel the advice would be coming from you today? What would be the advice? Gosh, I mean, I, in retrospect, I don't know that I could have done it any differently. <laughs> cool. uh, I think for the age that I was and my thirst for the knowledge that I had at the time, uh, it worked out perfectly. Mm. I think, um, if anything... Yeah, I don't know that I I don't know that I could look back and go, boy, here's where you really took a wrong turn. And I, <laughs> and I wish I could s stop you there. I don't see any moments like that. I don't think uh, it, it. Yeah, I don't think I found any particular nugget of wisdom too late, because sometimes that's the thing is like we go, boy, I wish I found this style of yoga or this teacher before I did this thing. I wish that I got into this earlier. And yeah, that's that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think. If anything, I probably would have emphasized to the early version of myself, dude, you better learn how to navigate social media quickly because the world is going to going to ask you to be that kind of personality in about six years. It shifted very quickly. I don't I think my space was like kind of coming on the scene <laughs> when I first started doing yoga. And it just like snowballed now to this culture of social media that I have a little bit of friction with and I and I found myself sort of with wobbly legs, not really sure how to fit into that because a lot of it seems like a reinforcement of an ego that I I don't necessarily comfortably um, take to. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't know that I have much advice for the, the early version of myself other than just keep practicing, have fun, be willing to explore and try new things mm. because that is definitely something that has made, kept my, my uh, passion for the practice alive is the uh, just sort of willingness to take a template of a pose and see what we could maybe notice if we were to deviate from what we might consider to be classic alignment mm. and just, you know, explore. What yeah. happens if you take your arm here? Mm. What happens if you take your leg there? I, I think that's great advice for any listeners that might be in their first year of practice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And the first year, you're just kind of sucking it up and you're like, you know, there's so much to learn. I, I, I think sometimes you don't even feel like there's a confidence to like <laughs> go do your own trip. But as you start to get a little more seasoned, you start to see uh, where where alignment could maybe be um, less less dogmatic in the way that you approach it and, and find a little bit more freedom to just explore and 
innovate. Nice. Yeah. And speaking of alignment, yeah. So you know, in the world of asana and quote unquote doing yoga, what do you think we are actually striving to practice, and how can we? take such a practice and actually integrate it into the world i think that kind of taps back into the yamas and the niyamas but you know while practicing asana what are we looking to practice maybe psychologically or like on the inner form in relating that to the world yeah um i think there's a a cool thing that starts to happen as we get more seasoned in our practice and we become a little bit more attentive in the body mind. So say we're, go we're holding a pose and it could be an intense pose where fatigue starts to build up. And you're aware that there's a part of you that wants out of the pose. You start kind of watching the amplification of sensation, how it begins to intensify. And you watch it from a place of curiosity rather than that sort of aversion of, oh, I'm just going to get out of this and do something else. You navigate your ability to sit at the threshold of discomfort without a complete and total retreat. You find that you can sort of phase into discomfort. And this phasing in is something that we could see in any other area of our life. So something bad happens and we can begin to watch how the emotion begins to well up how it might crescendo. We might become aware of how it subsides and then comes back in. But you become more inquisitive to how this kind of self that seems to exist in the finite container of our skin is responding to challenges in life. And when you face your challenge off your yoga mat, it's very often faced with a level of curiosity that we might not have applied to it had we never been given a glimpse that this is an approach that we could take. We might just get so caught up in the drama and decide that we just don't want it and we do everything we can to just fight the experience. And as you engage in the practice, I think you find yourself handling your other problems with a little bit more grace than you would have if you had never done yoga. And it's not, it's not a cure-all. I don't think, I think yoga, people think that yoga is going to just magically make you, um, sort of bulletproof to all the troubles of life. And that's not, that's not really the case. It just makes you a little bit more anchored in your own fortitude to work with what's coming down the pike rather than just suffering because it's not what you want it to be. Mm. You learn to accept your, your situation 
with the understanding that acceptance doesn't necessarily mean that you like it and you're able to navigate an experience that you know you don't like and you know it doesn't feel good but you know that for whatever reason it's the one you're in and you decide well i'm going to work with this mm, the search for contentment yes yes and i think i think contentment um it's it's a word and like any other word it can sort of be misinterpreted but contentment should never equal complacency mm. it just means that you find a workability in the situation you're in i like i like anthony demello's definition of, definition of enlightenment he said enlightenment is total cooperation with the inevitable <laughs> and that was it just whatever shows up you go, okay, this, this is what it is. I can't fix this. I can't change it, but I'm going to cooperate with it. I'm going to work with it. And I don't have to be the doormat to fate, mm. but I can um, sort of recognize when things are out of my control yeah. and sort of make wiser, more grounded and spontaneous choices in the context of what I have to work with rather than just suffering. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that the next question is an interesting parallel to um, to, to, to contentment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a broad question. If there was an illusion in yoga, what would such an illusion be? And how could we remove the veil of the maya, of the illusion, and... and find clarity, which mm -hmm. I think would tap into acceptance, but not, not identifying with something that it is when it just clearly isn't or vice versa in, in making something up in our mind of what we want to unfold. Yeah. I would say at a very basic level, one of the big illusions of yoga is that it's about being flexible, that it's about doing these poses. I think that's a, a big misinterpretation of what really the yoga process is about, which is, I would say, exploring inflexibility with curiosity and compassion. And in that the context of exploring inflexibility, flexibility becomes a byproduct and you find yourself able to move your body into more um, exotic shapes in a way that indicates that the nervous system has a little bit more play to it, that it's a little less anchored in the conditioning and sense of the past and there's something more organic starting to unfold. Uh, so yoga, I would say that's that's a basic illusion of yoga that um, I think lay people might sort of as ascribe, subscribe to. Uh, experienced yogis, I dare say, can fall into their own sort of illusions. Uh, illusions that if the room is not a certain way, hot enough or cold enough, I can't practice or I, this isn't real yoga. Um, I think 
there's an illusion that yoga has to be achieved through asana. And that's not necessarily the case. I think there's space enough to explore consciousness without really ever taking a down dog or a, you know, a bridge pose or an eagle pose. You can um, begin to analyze, I wouldn't say analyze, explore, experience uh, how your own sense of self is navigating life from a place of curiosity that anybody can have access to. And it doesn't, it doesn't require joining uh, a yoga studio or buying a yoga mat. Um, and I think yogis sometimes labor under the illusion that they have the main line to mm. God consciousness. And, um, you know, as, as I think it was Rumi who said, there's a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And he's, he's talking about, uh, the, the many faceted path to reverence and humility and a graceful kind of living. So that, that I would say is one of the illusions of yoga that, 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 that it's the way. Let's see, other illusions about yoga? No, I would say, I mean, those are the big ones. I would say those are the big ones cool. that I would... Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So, you know, there, there could, um, you know, possibly be in more illusions that could arise in the next question with the commercialization of yoga at an all-time boom, multi-billion yeah. industry. Wow. Multi-billion dollar industry. How can we, as the yoga revealers who are, you know, interested in the conversation of yoga, how can we stay in our integrity and honor yoga despite the uh, high marketing that most of us embrace? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know that I have found a good answer even for myself to mm. operate within. I look, I open up Facebook and I see all my fellow yoga teacher friends just blasting it out with <laughs> short little videos, with umpteen hashtags, yoga every damn day, yoga till I die, yoga in your face, yoga this, yoga that. It's just like, um, it's almost laughable to where I, I, maybe the cynical part of myself just is like, throws up my hand and says, I can't, I can't do that. I would feel like, um, uh, just a, a tool if I were to just <laughs> start posting things of that level of what feels like almost showiness. Mm. There's not enough space for people to just be a wreck and be very, um, pedestrian in how their life is lived. We are now under the impression due to social media that life needs to be lived with a capital letter L. And it's it's infused the 
Instagram culture where it's, you know, it's not enough to just do rock a handstand. You got to do the handstand against the graffiti wall or, uh, you know, on down on the beach, just some beautiful tropic in, tropical environment. There's something um, about social media that now gives people the impression that there are so many other people living a life that's more fulfilling than they are. Mm. And we've lost a kind of reverence for the simple life. We've lost our ability to see something noble in the path of the peasant. And I don't know how it's going to turn a corner because it seems like we're definitely on this trend where it doesn't seem to be subsiding. I don't know. I'm told that there's a new generation of kids that are growing up that are somewhat averse to the Facebook culture. And I... I I hear that. I don't know if I know any of these kids, but I hear such rumors and I go, great. That's great. We need that. We need a population that has basically said, no, I don't want to play that game mm. of look at me. Look what I can do. Look what I'm doing. Mm. Because in that look at me, look at what I'm doing is the me and the I and a kind of reification of the ego mm. that is... So to moving in the other direction what of what yoga really was about, which was seeing through the sort of facade of ego to a kind of pure version of a self underneath that's not as anchored in the identity that we sort of wrap ourselves in, but the way that we exist as a part of con of a continuum in the physical world and the human species and everything that's ever been and everything that ever will be mm. we see both our smallness and our significance in that context but it's never um it's it ultimately the truth reveals that life is not about us and it's not about um, our own pursuit of attention, accolades, material wealth or prestige. Mm. It's how do we serve while we're here and how do we um, just find a kind of humble appreciation for the fact that we are living today and can experience the beauty of our of our world mm -hmm. yeah so you know mary taylor she says often as well as I'm, i hope and i believe many others say you know we practice for the benefit of others yeah in such a way yeah yeah i think it could lend itself to a certain um maybe complacency where we think that all we have to do is practice mm. and we might be uh, less willing to give charitably mm. or yeah, there's other ways that we might fail to show up for people and still pat ourselves on the back because we think that we do enough yoga that it's having the global effect. Mm. But at some point, 
we do need to, I think, take some ownership for other ways that we can more concretely and directly improve the lives of people and not just expect that by practicing there will be this sort of um, etheric ripple effect that will make the world a better place. It does take people kind of digging in and getting down to uh, reality to make the world a better place. Beautiful. Beautiful. So two more questions, yeah. my friend. Yeah. Uh, one, and you can answer this as honestly as you like yeah. or as not honestly. We'll see what happens. Yeah. What do you do when nobody's watching? When nobody's watching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, lately, one of my, my hobbies, and you know, this is kind of born out of an awareness that... I was not really into pursuing yoga celebrity dumb. I I sort of bristled from that. And I was like, well, I sort of watched all, all my other, a lot of other people kind of going down that path. And I thought, Matt, how are you going to, what's your life going to look like in 10, 20 years? How are you going to, uh, you know, make ends meet? And so I found myself with a little bit of a financial, um, existential Crisis, not crisis, but a sort of an issue that mm. where I recognize, you know, as a yoga teacher, I don't have a pension. I don't I won't get retirement. Uh, I need to sort of plan for my future. So I started playing the stock market, which <laughs> is been and it has been so challenging and to some degree very disappointing because mm. you see that's like a huge swath of humanity doesn't play by the same rules that you do that that they have not set their compass on helping people and investing in things that are going to make the world better they will very often um take an oppositional stance against something that could make the world better because there's money to be made in casting doubt into that arena. So in my spare time, I, I do a lot of watching the ticker boards, watching the market. Some people would be like, wow, you just sit there and look at these numbers changing on the screen. I do. And I and honestly, what I was telling my roommate the other day that very often when I'm up in my office in front of the computer, I'm sort of shifting in and out of the computer screen and going into my body. And then I go back into watching or reading something and then I come back into my body and I might do some breath work. I might just kind of close the eyes. But very often, even when I'm sitting in front of a computer doing something that's so not yoga, the yoga's coming in. There's always a sort of checking in and I'm watching my emotional fluctuations as my portfolio plummets. Mostly that's all that's ever happened. I joke that I've died a thousand deaths in the stock market and I, and I will probably die a thousand more next month. It's just a brutal world where I've tried to invest according to my own um, uh, values and morality and it has, I hate to say, bit me in the ass mm. and it doesn't mean that I'm going to change but that's been you know like a recent a recent lesson for me is um 
you know, just recognizing that that stock market world isn't just a great way to build a, a slight residual income if you have patience. Mm. I thought, I'm a yogi. I've got patience. I've got flexibility. I know what it's like to feel uncomfortable and not react. Isn't that what makes a good investor? Well, sometimes it, it takes reaction to be a good investor and knowing when to just pull out or jump in um, and not just kind of watch in a way that's indecisive. So that's something I do when nobody's watching. Um, I like watching TV. I'm into shows that are not... Um, you know, peaceful or beautiful. I like things that are dark and probably have some violence to them. I like stories of crime. Um, I I find these things to be very fascinating. I get I really love the internet, and it unfortunately pulls too much of my time. But there's just so many cool things out there. You can watch just any number of movies. Like I used to. I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, you used to have your DVD collection. <laughs> and I think people now just are like, screw that. I can watch anything that I want anytime I want. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to collect DVDs mm -hmm. to save a few bucks at the rental store. It's online. And I can, Sweet. you know, I can watch whatever movie I want. There's no need to go back and watch some movie that I really enjoyed over and over again. I, I, you know, I think we're kind of ready to move on and I'm enjoying sort of exploring the world of HBO now and Netflix <laughs> and things like that. I love the serial shows. I love those shows that just continue on. It's like getting to watch a movie that goes on for hours and hours, days, you could even say. Mm. Um, and you get caught up in the narrative where you, you see themes of your own life and you see, um, you know, just ways that you can learn from the drama of other people uh, how to navigate your own existence. Mm, nice. one, one of my big takeaways from watching a lot of bad shows or bad movies is that one of the big problems of this world is a lack of communication. It's, it's the scene cut where a person says their line and then they just storm off. Where you realize that if people were to do this in real life, it would create for a horrible existence. But the great thing about human life compared to TV is that we really carry out our conversations, hopefully to conclusion, where if we get two people who are mature and grounded, there doesn't have to be the hanging up of the phone or the slamming the door and storming out um, like you might see in a way that creates good television drama, but doesn't create for good um, guidance to how to be a human being. So yeah, I, I do, awesome. I do get a little bit into the TV. I think I maybe watch more TV than I should. Um, I try to stay away from things with commercials mm -hmm. because, uh, commercials I believe are there to sort of punch a hole in your own happiness and make you feel incomplete and get mm -hmm. you to buy a product so that you could feel complete. And there's a kind of cycle around the consumptive pattern of wanting something, buying it. And I try to sort of put up a bit of a filter so that 
that that doesn't get too into my being. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing what you <laughs> sure. do. I was lucky. To, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And one last question, Matt. What is one nugget of wisdom that you would offer our listeners as they carry on on the path of being human? On the path of being human, don't try to be perfect. Mm. Really, like, don't lower the bar for yourself, but don't set the bar unrealistically high where you don't let yourself continue the journey in a way that gives space to take those faltering steps and to make mistakes and to make bad choices and to lapse back into old patterns. I think we tend to get a little kind of purist when we think that if we're going to do this, we have to do it wholesale. And that means cutting out, um, you know, all sorts of foods and all people from our lives uh, or I don't know, all the things that we try to like put up a wall because we tell ourselves that would that would make me a bad yogi if I were to take part of that. I think there needs to be space for the things that are very human uh, to be part of our journey so that we don't immediately try to, to don the white robe and be superhuman. Mm. I think first and foremost, it's just about being a person mm. and recognizing that we're allowed to get mad. Mm. We're allowed to feel embarrassed. We're allowed to feel things like shame and regret um, and what we might call negative emotions. My teacher once said, all emotion is simply energy in motion. Mm -hmm. And we run into our problems when we try to fight it and we push it down or we try to turn it into a story about who's wrong and who's right. It's nice to just give ourselves space to feel things that aren't necessarily in what we think of as the positive spectrum of emotional experience. It's nice to give ourselves space to feel all of the, the spectrum of life. Mm. It makes it so much more rewarding when we have a broader emotional range that can hold sadness as well as profound states of joy. Mm. Wow. Thank you for that takeaway. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. It's My always pleasure. such a pleasure to, to be exploring life together. And I'm so privileged to sit across from you and to be in the same communities as you. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, an honor. Namaste, brother. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Yoga Revealed with Matt Kapanis. If you ever want to practice with Matt and you're ever in Denver or Boulder, Colorado, he teaches multiple classes at the Yoga Pod. Also, if you have an interest to teach yoga, by mentioning the podcast with Matt to any Yoga Pod location in America, you are eligible to receive 10% off of their Seva teacher training program. A true gift it is to step into the practice of service for others. 
If you haven't already, please do sign up for the Yoga Revealed newsletter via yogarevealed.com. We are excited to stay connected with you and share with you our upcoming ebook and the exciting launch of 100 Days of Yoga. Find out more by staying connected with us at yogarevealed.com. Until next time, may your day be filled with abundance and beauty. Coming from your brother in Boulder, Alec Rubin. Namaste, my friends. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.